Let's jump into Luke 17. This is going to be a, a great teaching as we head into 21 days of prayer in just a few weeks. We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, because we want to know who Jesus was, what he really did, said, and taught for ourselves firsthand. And last week, we studied through Luke 16, one of the quintessential teachings in the Bible on the subject of money. And we could summarize that entire chapter by saying that Jesus counsels us to make our money subject to him rather than making ourselves subject to money. This week I was planning on getting through far more verses than we're going to get through today. That happens a lot. Because the 10 verses we're going to look at turn out to cover some of those subjects, those topics that we need to be reminded of on a very regular basis. Today the two big things Jesus is going to teach about are forgiveness and faith. Forgiveness and faith. And I don't know about you, but I need regular reminders to exercise both because neither of those things is my default setting. I don't naturally drift towards faith and forgiveness. I have to choose forgiveness and faith. And since you're all human, I have the feeling it's probably the same for you. So let's see what the Lord has to say to us in his word today. In Luke 16, The chapter before this, we had read that the Pharisees had turned their noses up at Jesus' teaching. They had brushed him off, dismissed him, mocked him, and Luke 17 is simply the continuation of that and tells us what Jesus does next. So in response to the Pharisees, who were meant to lead the people to God, but were instead leading people from God by misrepresenting him, Jesus, verse 1, said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. He's saying, it's inevitable that people are going to lead my children astray, but you make sure that you aren't one of those people. Because if you are one of those people, casting a gaze in the Pharisees' direction, there's great woe coming your way one day. Verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone, a stone weighing over a ton, were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. You know, the Jews are good at a lot of things, but they've never really been known as a seafaring people. Yes, they fished in the Sea of Galilee, but they were terrified of the open ocean. They feared it, and it would have been terrifying to them to have Jesus create this mental picture of having a great weight tied around your neck and being cast into the open sea. So he's scaring these guys. The original language tells us that the little ones referred to by Jesus here refers to both children and new or young believers in the faith. And Jesus explains we have a duty to accurately represent them to both groups. When it comes to children, Jesus is saying, don't lie to them about who I am. Don't deceive them. Don't distort the truth. And it would be very, very easy for me to use this as a jumping off point to rail against those in our world who seek to lie to our children through the curriculums they craft for our schools and the programming they craft for children's TV. But what I notice is that Jesus is really referring to the Pharisees here, those who were supposed to represent God, who claimed to represent God. These Pharisees were really misrepresenting God. And what I think is most helpful for us as believers anytime we're in the Word is not to take the approach of who could this be railing against who's out there, but to rather say, hey, is there anything in here among God's people that might apply to us that we might need to take from this? Because we're never surprised when non-believers act like non-believers. And we never expect non-believers to act like believers. 
we should act like believers because we're believers. When I was visiting a, a partner church in Texas last year, a guy who was a, a young teenager in my youth group when I was a youth pastor in Texas 15 years ago reached out to me to grab coffee. And I was glad to do it. I loved the guy. It was good to catch up with him. But what broke my heart is I asked the question, how are you doing in your relationship with Jesus? And he said, I, I don't really have one anymore. And he went on to share how uh, he'd been raised in a Christian home. I knew that. I knew his family. They were very, very active in the church. Active in ministry, active in missions. But, but you see, it turned out that in the privacy of their home, things were a train wreck. His mom and dad argued, yelled at each other all the time, were manipulative with the kids, guilt-tripping the kids, very condemning to the kids. And it was just a, a horrible home environment. And as he grew into adulthood, he had this problem that his view of God was inexorably connected to the example his parents set in his home. And as he talked with me about it, he said, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to figure out who is Jesus outside of all that stuff, outside of all my experiences with my parents and some negative experiences with the church. And that just broke my heart because he hasn't figured out how to do that yet. You know, when we claim to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, the Bible says we become one of his ambassadors, his representatives on the earth. And as much as we may wish it wasn't so, our children are drawing conclusions about God based on the behavior of their parents who claim to represent him. May we never take that responsibility lightly. We don't need to be perfect. None of us are. But we do need to be gracious. We need to stand for truth. We need to be serious about being like Jesus ourselves as we attempt to raise children who are like Jesus. And we need to repent even to our kids when we fall short of that. God help us to represent you rightly to our kids. And when it comes to those who are young in the faith, Jesus is equally serious about us not misrepresenting him to them either. And as I was thinking about this, I realized that we, the church, tend to do this most often in one of two ways. So make a note of this. The first way we can misrepresent God to those who are new or young in the faith is we misrepresent truth. We misrepresent truth. And here's how we do that. We'll expect that everything in a young or new believer's life should change overnight. When in reality, we're all still working through our own issues, right? When we hammer a new or young believer with too many demands too fast, it crushes their spirit. It crushes their spirit. We have to remember that it's the Lord that changes a person, not the law that changes a person. We've tried doing the law thing. It's a several thousand year failed experiment on our part. The law does not change us. It does not make us righteous but before you start shouting amen too quickly, please note that the second mistake is that we misrepresent grace. Make a note of that. We misrepresent grace. And so here's what happens. We, we realize, oh man, if we go too far with this truth thing, with too many demands, too hard, too fast, we're going to crush them. So we go all the way to the opposite extreme. And we misrepresent grace. And we begin to say, you know, you don't have to do that. I know the Bible says that, but you're a new believer. You don't need to do that. And here's why that's misrepresenting grace. We don't have the authority to give anybody a pass on obeying the word of God. 
We don't have the authority to essentially put on an editor's cap for the Bible and say, I'm going to create a custom version for you because you're young in the faith, so you don't have to do this or this or this or this. Here's my edited version of the Word of God because I believe I have the authority to do that, to overrule God and say, you don't have to do that. Well, well how do I know I don't have to do that? Because I'm giving you clearance. And without realizing it, we are taking a higher position than God and giving someone a pass when God has given a clear instruction. We're not God. His word never changes. So what's the right approach? Well, as always, it's embodied in the man Christ Jesus. In John 1, he's described as being what? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. You see, grace and truth were married together. They functioned together. They ministered together perfectly in the life of Jesus. And how he dealt with the woman caught in adultery. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Grace and truth together. And what I see Jesus do in his earthly ministry and throughout his word is he never dismisses anything in the word. He never contradicts anything in his word. He's always upfront and uncompromising about the truth of his word. But he's so patient and he's so gracious with our struggles to walk it out the right way, isn't he? You see, Jesus never says you don't have to do that. What he says is, as you strive to be righteous, to live in a way that honors me, and you inevitably fail all the time, there's grace, there's patience, there's mercy. I'm with you, we're getting closer. That's how grace and truth come together. That's our example. The standard is Jesus. The standard doesn't get lowered. We don't tell each other, we don't tell our kids, hey, you know, Jesus is too lofty of an example, so we're gonna go for Gideon. You're gonna wear WWGD bracelets around our house because we just need to set the bar a little bit lower. Jesus is too high. We don't do that. Jesus is the standard, but there's grace in our failure to live up to that standard because God knows we all fall short. And I believe Jesus would say to all of us as we seek to live up to our calling, to rightly represent the Lord to each other and our kids, he would say, don't misrepresent me by ignoring the truth of my word and don't misrepresent me by ignoring the reality of my grace. Grace and truth together is how we represent the Lord rightly. Another way believers can misrepresent the Lord is, and I see this very prevalently in, in modern Christianity, is we take a believer who has a simple and beautiful faith. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we set them up to stumble and, and to doubt by raising questions in the name of intellectualism and philosophy that undermine their beautiful faith. Hey, you know, I'm so excited to be following Jesus. I've realized he's always with me. Well, did you know that the Bible's been translated through a few different iterations and there are some nuances in the text that you really can't grasp till you're in about year nine of Greek. And so while it's cute that you have this faith in Jesus, I would just urge you not, not to go too overboard with it. That's a real danger, that's a real thing that happens in many biblical circles right now. And I believe it's a serious, serious thing in the eyes of God for a believer to take another believer and lead them into doubting God's word. 
the integrity of the Bible, doubting their faith. You know, the Bible calls this wolf behavior. And if you ever want to do a word study on the word wolf in the Bible, I'll give you the result right now. It's never used in a positive way. Nobody has a pet wolf. Nobody uses a wolf as an analogy for anything good. It's always, always a bad thing. And the Bible says that's what a wolf does. He comes in and he preys on the sheep in the church. Verses 1 and 2, this warning from Jesus is why it matters so much that we counsel not only our children, but each other from the word of God and not from our own opinions. When someone says, what do you think I should do? Or someone is heading off the rails. The question isn't what do you think they should do? The question is what does the word of God say? Let's start there. And then let's work together to figure out how does this apply to our life, to your situation, to my situation. That's where we need to start. You'll never go wrong starting that way and pursuing that line of thinking. This is why it's such a serious thing. This is why I don't get up very often and do this and say, church, the Lord told me that. Because that is a weighty, heavy, serious statement. And it honestly blows my mind that within our Christian family, there are churches where multiple people stand up every single Sunday and say something that's prefaced with the phrase, the Lord told me that. That's a heavy, heavy thing to say, the God of heaven and earth has told me this, and so you should respond to what I'm telling you because it comes straight from the mouth of God. Can God do that? Absolutely. But man, you better be sure that's the Lord and not the pizza you had last night. You better be really, really sure. This is why false doctrine cannot be tolerated in the church. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Does he sound serious? You bet. It's the father's heart for his children. If you're thinking, man, chill out, Jesus. No chill. What's going on here? This is a father's heart for his children. He's the good shepherd. He's gentle with his sheep. Man, but he will rock the head of the wolf with his rook if he needs to. If you're a parent, you know this is true. You love my kids, I will love you. You mess with my kids, I don't want to say anything that could be used as evidence in a later criminal proceeding. We'll leave it at that. Jesus is not okay with people leading his kids to stumble. He won't stand for it. This is why us as the church, we've got to view simple faith and trust in Jesus as the highest form of faith, not the lowest. Jesus is telling us that the simple trust of a child in a good father is the goal for all of us. That's what we're supposed to be striving for. We're not striving to get the kids who are in the kids ministry right now who love God to be where we are. We're down here striving, trying to get to where the kids in the kids' ministry right now who love the Lord are. We're trying to get there because we've been through life. We're jaded. We've been through some experiences. And we're just trying to get back as much as we can to the place that they're at right now, which is that I have a Father in heaven who loves me, is with me, never leaves me, never forsakes me, and he'll always take care of me. I love him and he loves me. That's it, man. If we could get back to that, mission accomplished, mission accomplished. We're not seeking a faith that becomes more and more complicated, but rather a faith that becomes simpler, cleaner, 
purer and results in a complete trust in our Father in heaven. For those of you who serve in our kids' ministry, thank you. You're involved in representing God to our kids and you're doing a great job. And it doesn't matter if the kids in our kids' ministry have the most charismatic or entertaining teachers. It doesn't matter. What I care about and what we care about far more is that they have men and women who love God and love Jesus and represent Jesus to them. That's, that's all we care about. That's all we care about. And you guys do an amazing job of that. I'm so proud of those of you who are involved in our kids' ministry. Thank you for what you do. Now, just in case his disciples are getting too excited and going, yeah, stick it to those Pharisees, Jesus. Stick it to the man. You tell them what's up. He immediately says in verse 3, underline, take heed to yourselves. Let's turn the spotlight on you. If your brother, underline brother, sins against you, rebuke him, underline rebuke, rebuke him. So while it's true that love covers a multitude of sins and love is also made manifest in the person of Jesus, whom as we read is full of grace and truth, as the body of Christ, the church, we're all connected. That's what the scriptures teach. When one of us grieves, we grieve together. When one of us is hurting, we hurt together. And when someone in our church has sinned against another person in our church family and is either unaware or unrepentant, we have a duty to rebuke that person. And all that means is simply bringing what they've done to their attention and saying, you've wounded this person. That's not right. You need to go make it right. Why? Because the goal for all of us is to become more like Jesus. That's the goal. If I'm hurting people, if I'm hurting you, and you don't tell me because you think that's the loving thing to do, I can't address the issue. It remains a blind spot for me and my spiritual development is hindered as a result. Jesus says, if your brother or sister in the Lord has sinned against you, tell them. And that doesn't mean posting on Facebook, don't you hate it when the so-called Christians in your life turn out to be giant hypocrites? Who are you talking about? Is everything okay? Oh, I don't really wanna talk about it. That's not what we're talking about here. Matthew 18 is the model. Go to the person, directly and discreetly. That's the model. This also protects against any root of bitterness having opportunity to grow between believers. But, but I thought we weren't supposed to judge. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5.12? What have I to do with judging those who are outside, outside the church? Do you not judge those who are inside, inside the church? Paul says outside the church, that's God's business. Inside the church, that's where God expects us to be serious about becoming more like Jesus. Don't judge anybody outside the church. Don't expect non-believers to act like believers. But inside the church, we're trying to be like Jesus. We're supposed to act like believers. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And then he says, and if he repents, forgive him. If he or she admits that what they did was sin, they request your forgiveness, you gotta give it to them. Verse four, and if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. You might remember the rabbis in that day taught if somebody sinned against you in the same way, you had a duty to forgive him up to three times, like in your life. But after that third time, you had no duty to forgive him. You could be like, you're done. I gave you three chances, you're done. A perfect man would forgive three times, so Jesus doubles it and adds one to get to seven, but the real point here is not the number seven. The point is that it's in one day. It's seven times in one day. Seven being the biblical number of completion or perfection, 
means what Jesus is really saying is as many times as he keeps repenting, you need to keep forgiving. So the disciples would have been floored and would have been saying, in the same day? Well, how do we know this? Because back in Matthew 18, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? So Peter was trying to be spiritual, saying, not only three. I'll double it and add one to get to the biblical number of perfection. I'll forgive him seven times over the course of my life. And you'll remember how Jesus replies. He says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, which basically means infinity in biblical numerology. As many times as he keeps repenting, you need to keep forgiving. And so now later on, Jesus says, do seven times in a day if you have to. As many times as he keeps coming, you keep repenting, which would have been crazy to these disciples. So make a note of this. Jesus commands his disciples to forgive without any limit. To forgive without any limit. When Jesus says 70 times 7, it doesn't mean you go, okay, 490, that's it. And you carry around a little book and you let him know, you're on 312. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. As many times as they keep repenting, you keep forgiving. So for the sake of clarity, I need to say this anytime we talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean pretending the sin never happened. It simply means not holding it against them before the Lord. It means if you're standing before God and they're standing next to you and God says, do they owe you anything? Are they indebted to you in any way? That you would answer no. No. They owe me nothing. But if a woman is living with an abusive husband, forgiveness does not mean going back over and over again to get beaten up again and again and again. And I really want to just blow up one of these nonsense sayings that floats around the church. Some of you might have heard this before. They say, you know, true forgiveness means forgiving and forgetting, which sounds nice, but is ludicrously stupid when you actually begin to apply it to reality. Because if you have any appreciation for the significance of some of the trauma that people go through in life, none of us would dare stand in front of them and tell them, you need to forget about that. You need to forget about what they did to you. Because we all understand there are some things you will never forget. You'll never forget. It would also be idiotic because if we really did that, if we really forgave and forgot, there would be no justice system. There would be no prisons because there would be no consequences because we just forgive and forget. It's a really nice idea, but it's not what we're expected to do. You know who forgives and forgets? God. Because he's God. When God forgives and forgets, there is no risk that someone is going to abuse God. There is no risk that God is going to be taken advantage of by somebody. Nobody's doing that to God. He's all-powerful. So the Lord can say prophetically in Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God can do that. God can forgive and forget. But we can't. We can't. And so we need to understand forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. And just because you can't forget doesn't mean you can't forgive. Forgiveness means that you hold nothing against them in the eyes of the Lord. So make a note of this. We forgive without forgetting because we're not God. We're not God. We forgive without forgetting. So there's two sides of that. You don't need to forget to forgive. And if you can't forget, it doesn't mean you can't forgive. 
Well, stunned by the idea of forgiving over and over and over again, verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. This is fascinating to me because to truly forgive in the radical way Jesus describes, we don't need more love as much as we need more faith. Let me explain. To truly forgive the most difficult offenses done to us in our life requires that we release judgment to the Lord and trust him to satisfy our own hunger for justice. It means trusting that the peace we need will come from God, not from getting our revenge. And that requires a significant amount of faith, believing that God will judge and work this out rightly and that the peace that I need will come from him, not from vengeance. That's why the disciples ask for faith. They recognize that Jesus is asking them to live out forgiveness in a way that's very, very difficult to do. So make a note of this. Forgiveness requires the faith to place our need for justice and peace in the hands of God. It requires the faith to place our need for justice and peace in the hands of God. Verse six, so the Lord said, if you have faith, and the word if there is really the word since. For as Romans 12, three tells us, God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. We've all been given a measure of faith. So he's really saying, since you have faith, even if it's a little bit, since you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. So let's unpack this answer from Jesus. And the first thing I want to point out is that this is among the verses that Christians love to use out of context the most. It's pretty high up on the list. It's right up there with Mark eleven twenty three, where Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. So those in the prosperity gospel movement, the name it and claim it guys, the the blab it and grab it gang, will teach that Jesus is telling us that faith will turn God into our own cosmic genie, supplying our wishes on command. But what's the context here? Jesus is speaking to his disciples about having enough faith to do what? Forgive people, regardless of how many times they've wronged you. That's the context. You see, in both cases, the mulberry tree and the mountain, Jesus is teaching about how we should use our speech to exercise our faith, not so that we can fulfill a personal wish list, but that we might be faithful and able to do what Jesus has called us to do, that we might serve our king and see his will accomplished, his kingdom come in and through us. The prosperity gospel is just the opposite. It's about trying to see my will accomplished through God rather than God's will accomplished through me. So the disciples are saying, we don't have the faith to forgive like that. We don't have the, the faith to just release things into the hands of God. Have you ever been there? Maybe you are there in that place where you just think, I, I just, I can't forgive. And you're realizing right now it's a faith issue because you're struggling to believe that Jesus will do justly. He will judge correctly and that you can actually have peace even if you don't have a hand in getting vengeance against those who've wronged you. Have you been there? 
Well, I love Jesus' response. He references the mustard seed, considered the smallest of all seeds, and he says, if you'll just take that small, tiny bit of faith that you have and just give me that to work with, you won't believe what I'll accomplish in your life with that little bit of faith. When faith like a mustard seed is all that you can muster, I can work with that. That's a wonderful, encouraging answer. Make a note of this. God will provide the faith we need if we will exercise the little we have. That's what he's saying. God will provide the faith we need if we will exercise the little we have. Now, I want you to underline something in that verse we just read. He says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say, underline say to this mulberry tree. And here's the key. Jesus says that with that little, itty-bitty, teeny-tiny bit of faith you have, you can, what does he say, think, you can hope, you can dream, you can journal. No, he says you, you can say. You can say. Jesus says, speak out. Speak out loud. And if you haven't figured this out yet in your Bible, there's incredible power in our words, in our speech. The Bible calls our words our confession. You see, we can't always choose what we think, but we can always choose what we say. We can always control what comes out of our mouth. And when you're in that place when you don't know how to forgive a person, how to let it go, your feelings and emotions aren't there and you can't seem to will yourself into the place of wanting to forgive the person you can still find that little place of faith where you can say, I don't want to forgive them, but I want to want to forgive them. I want to want to forgive them. In that place, with that little mustard seed of faith, I believe Jesus would say, you begin to speak out. You begin to speak out. Even when your heart isn't there, when your emotions aren't there, and you begin to speak out, Father, I forgive him. I forgive her. I, I choose to release them from any debt they owe me. I put the situation in your hands and I choose to be free in the name of Jesus. He says, speak it out because you won't believe what Jesus will do if you'll speak out that little bit of faith that you have. He says, I'll set you free. I'll fill in the faith gap for you. Make a note of this. Jesus and his word teach over and over again that our faith will follow our confession. Our faith will follow our confession. Our faith will follow our words. If you want more faith, start speaking out loud about the faithfulness and goodness of God. Start speaking the promises of his word out loud. And if you want to build doubt, I can tell you how to do that too. Just begin speaking out loud all the time about your fears and anxiety. Speak as though God's not with you, as though he won't take care of you. And you'll be filled with fear and anxiety. It's very easy. We decide. Our faith will follow our confession. Well, how powerful is our speech? Track with me. If you want to, put a note, put something where you are right now and flip to Romans 10 if you want to for a minute with me. Or you can just listen in. Romans 10. It's such a key chapter in the Bible, sort of like the rest of Romans. It's a key passage on salvation, but I think it's telling us even more than that. If you've read through the Gospels, you will recall this recurring analogy of salvation being like living water. The promise that the Holy Spirit in us will constantly produce fresh new life from the inside out like a fountain. 
the key to this happening is faith flowing through our lives, in and out, not faith getting stored up in our lives. We're supposed to be a fountain, not a reservoir of faith. What we see in the Bible is that hearing God's word is how we receive faith. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we receive God's word by doing what we're doing right now, hearing it, receiving it, taking it in. But speaking God's word is how we release faith. And that's how the flow happens in our lives. That's what keeps our faith fresh and dynamic and powerful. And I know that in our Christian world, we get uncomfortable talking about the power of our words because the wacky prosperity gospel guys on TV have hijacked this whole idea and gone to crazy bananas ends with it. But here's the thing. They've taken something that's true and they've twisted it. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater because Paul, super serious scholarly Paul, says in Romans 10 beginning in verse 8, the word is near you in your mouth, underline mouth, and in your heart, underline heart. And we're just going to underline mouth and heart every time they show up. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Do you see the flow there? You receive faith by hearing the word. It's stored up in your heart. But it's activated, it's released by confession, by speaking it out loud. And when Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The word for saved there is the Greek word sozo. It doesn't just mean saved as in justified. It doesn't just mean your sins forgiven. It refers to the full sphere of salvation, which includes healing, deliverance, blessing, wholeness. So Paul, this serious theologian, is saying, listen, you hear the word, you take it in, you believe it in your heart, but when it's confessed with your mouth, that's where the flow begins to happen. That's what releases and activates faith in your life. That's what brings about this process of healing, this movement toward wholeness, blessing in your life. It's this flow. The theologian of theologians, Paul, is telling us, make a note of this, that the flow of faith works this way. Firstly, by receiving the word. That happens through hearing it. Secondly, by believing the word, which takes place in one's heart. And then lastly, releasing the word, which happens as we speak it out loud. This explains why you and I love praying with people who tend to pray the scriptures when they pray. You ever prayed with somebody like that? They pray and they know your situation and their prayer always begins with, Father, we know that your word says. Jesus, we know that your word says. And they speak scripture into your situation. There's something supernatural going on with that. And I'm like you. I don't really generally, if I'm honest, get excited about getting together with other people and praying. I should because I'm a pastor. But it's one of the hardest things to do, get people to a prayer meeting. But probably like you, I never regret it when I do it. And I'm always glad afterward. And I will just tell you, man, we're, we're experiencing this right now even in our men's groups. It's amazing to me. We, we pray for a good chunk of time because 
everybody can just sense God is doing something. And it's, it's more than us taking turns. It's more than the words we're praying. God is moving as we speak out and activate our faith. It, it has an impact on every person around the room, even if you're not the person being prayed for. Likewise, we've also all known people in church who just always seem to be defeated and downcast all the time. And I'd make a bet with you. I would wager that like me, your experience with that person is they almost never have a confession of faith from the Bible. They almost, probably, actually not almost, they just never have anything from God's word to say about their situation. My week sucked again. And it's never followed by, but the Lord is causing all things to work to good. And I'm just trying to hang in there. It's just despondency and despair. No release of God's word. And I'm not saying don't be real at church. I'm saying as disciples of Jesus, being real needs to sound like this. I'm struggling right now. I know God's doing something good because I believe what his word says. But right now everything seems to be falling apart. Would you pray with me that I would keep the faith? Would you pray with me that I would walk in faith and in agreement with the word of God? Because I'm having a hard time doing that right now. You see the difference? You see, instead of questioning whether God is wavering, it's asking for prayer and for help because you or I are wavering. And it's acknowledging, hey, God is a rock. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but I'm not a rock. And I'm wavering right now. Would you pray with me that I would be strong in my faith? The words of Jesus spoke the universe into existence. They calmed the waves on the Sea of Galilee. They raised Lazarus from the grave. And I love this. You've heard me say it before. When Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, why does he say, Lazarus, come forth? Because if he wasn't specific, they all would have come forth. Every dead person there. And the words of Jesus declared the defeat of sin from the cross when he said, it is finished. After the death of Moses... The Lord himself commissioned Joshua to lead the people of Israel, and he told him this. I put it on your outline. This is huge. This is what God says to Joshua. This is, this is the coach's speech from God to Joshua. Joshua, do this. This is how you're going to succeed. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your what? Your mouth. Underline mouth. Not your journal, not your Bible, but your mouth. But you shall meditate, underline meditate in it day and night. The Hebrew word for meditate there actually means mutter. Mutter. So he says day and night. You're going to walk around mumbling the Bible. That's what you need to do over and over and over again. That you may observe to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. You see, we all mutter don't we? In response to the things life throws our way, we're all muttering. We all speak out some sort of meditation. The question is, what will our muttering, what will our meditation be? When your alarm clock goes off tomorrow morning, will you greet it with a string of expletives? Or will you say, through the Lord's mercies we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you, God, for a new morning with new mercies and new compassions. Right there, you've made a choice that's gonna affect how the rest of your day plays out. Or when you get to work and you go into your meeting and there is your coworker taking credit for one of your ideas, you can plot their murder in your mind 
Or you could choose to echo the words of Paul to the Philippians and proclaim, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As your emotions and your energy and your health make themselves more obvious throughout your day, you can either say, man, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Or you can say to yourself, let the weak say I'm strong. I'm strong in the strength of the Lord where it really matters. When you look around at your family, you come home after work, and all you see are issues, 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 more issues. You can say everything's falling apart. The end is near. It's coming around the corner. I can see it right now. Or you can say, thank you, Father, that we know all things work together for good to those who love God. And even through our issues, even through our messes, you're doing something good. Thank you that you're active in our lives. When money is tight and you have that feeling like you can't breathe, like you're being suffocated by life, it's either we're going down, this is it, or it's thank you, Father, that your word says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Make the choice to frame your life with the word of God. I promise it will change the picture inside the frame if you will frame your life with the word of God. The writer of Hebrews points out, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why has God said that? So we may boldly say, underline say, not know or write or even pray. He has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Some of you feel like you don't have the faith to pray. You don't have the faith to forgive. You don't have the faith to believe. You don't have the faith to overcome the crisis or the situation that you're in. Listen to me. As you begin to speak, out loud, the word of God, the promises of God, as you begin to take that teeny tiny little bit of faith and activate it, the Lord says, not me, the Lord says, you'll be amazed what he will accomplish in and through your life if you'll just activate that little bit of faith. Can you start by saying amen? Amen. That was terrible. That was only a relative who said amen. Can you say amen? Amen. There we go. So Jesus tells his disciples, including you and I, that yes, they, they do need greater faith to forgive as the Lord desires them to. But he'll do wonders through the little faith that they have. It's an encouraging, powerful word from our Savior Jesus. If you haven't noticed, forgiveness is a big, big deal to the Lord. It's a big, big deal. And we know why. Because forgiveness was the entire reason Jesus came to the earth. Forgiveness is the reason Jesus died on the earth. Forgiveness is the reason why we have the elements of communion in the back today and why we're supposed to take communion every chance we get because forgiveness is behind the entire mission of God toward humanity, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So whether you are a new believer or a seasoned saint, forgiveness is not something Jesus expects us to get around to eventually. In verses 7 through 10, Jesus is going to change his tone and he's going to say, yes, I want to work through your faith and empower you by my spirit to forgive. But disciples, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, 
there's another side to this, and it's this. If you're my disciple, Jesus would say, you're my servant, and I'm telling you to forgive. This is an instruction. This is a command. We're not having a conversation as peers. Jesus would say, don't forget, I'm also your God, and I'm commanding you to forgive. Here's what he says in verses 7 through 10. And which of you, having a servant, underline servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's coming from the field, oh, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, underline you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, and then underline the rest of this verse, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. See, Jesus is not messing around. Just in case we think we're really going above and beyond by forgiving someone. Just in case we think we're super spiritual and elite because we forgave someone who's really difficult to forgive. In case we think we deserve some sort of spiritual medal for forgiving someone. Jesus would say, trust me guys, by the time my time on earth is done, you will understand that I have the authority to command you to forgive because I have forgiven every person with my body and my blood. Jesus sets us straight and he says, forgiveness is not a bonus point question. It's not an extra credit assignment. Forgiveness is simply the duty of every Christian. If you are indeed my disciple, my servant, then you will forgive because I ask you to. Write this down. Forgiveness is non-optional for any disciple of Jesus. It is non-optional. And if you only become a believer today, if you're a new or young believer, you need, you need to hear me on this. Forgiveness is non-optional. No matter how difficult or painful it is, no matter how horrible the specifics of your situation, and I'm not trying to play them down or diminish them, I have a duty from the Word of God to tell you plainly that if there is anyone in your life who has wronged you that you have not forgiven, you must forgive them today. You must forgive them today. It's not a process. It's a decision that begins a process. The word of the Lord commands it. Every single one of us must walk out those doors today knowing we've forgiven everyone who's ever wronged us. Jesus gives his disciples no other option. You take the little bit of faith that you have, you speak it out, you can do it in this coming time of worship. Just do it when I'm singing really loud. And we'll believe in faith that as you do that, the music won't suddenly stop and you'll be like, I forgive my husband. That's, that won't happen, don't worry. You just speak it out, even if it's soft. You speak it out and God's gonna work. God's gonna work through that. He'll change your heart. He'll set you free. He'll, he'll give you his peace. But here's the thing, let me be real with you. And then you may have to choose to do it again tomorrow and the next day. And the next day, you make that choice all over again. But I promise one day you're going to wake up. And you won't forget, but you'll find that you've been set free. And that that decision you've made to release forgiveness has really brought you peace. I promise that day will come, even if it seems far away right now. But you've got to start today. 
The other big takeaway from today's text is this, that our faith needs to be released and expressed through our out loud spoken confession. Our faith is simply not living up to its potential when it's only expressed in our journals or in the margins of our Bible. It needs to be released through our speech. Here's some practical ways to do that. I would just say get around people who talk about the Word of God. Get yourself into places where people talk about the Word. Get yourself into relationships where you speak about the Word of God. If you don't know how to get those or where to start, just start with our men's or women's group. Tuesday night. Again, there's so much more going on on the supernatural level than just watching a DVD and and praying together. God is doing something as his word is activated as we talk about it. Speak about it with your spouse if you're married. Just, Just go home today, talk about what we learned in God's word. Just say something about it. As the Lord said to Joshua, if you'll just talk about this on a daily basis... God's going to do something through it. If you have children, let me just encourage you, that daily devotion, that Bible story, whatever it is that you can manage, because I know life is full, those verses that you share with them, that devotional you read and then you walk away feeling horribly inadequate as a parent because you're like, that was a terrible devotion. I should do so much better than that. There's more going on than you realize. As you just begin to speak and activate and release your faith, faith is being released Faith is being imparted to your kids, to your family, and in your household. There's more going on than whether you think you did a good job with that Bible story or not. There's more going on. Be encouraged. And if you're having trouble framing your day with God's word, I encourage you to get some three-by-five cards, write out some of God's promises, and tape them wherever you need to. Especially in those places where, where you just begin to forget to frame your life with the word of God. Maybe it needs to be right next to your alarm clock. So when it goes off, you can be like, ah, there it is. Maybe it needs to be in your cubicle in the office. Maybe it needs to be on your steering wheel as you drive. It is the will of God that none should perish. That something like that would be, would be good. Your locker at school. Here's some great promises from God's word to minister to you right now and this coming week. And when you really begin to frame your life with the word of God, things change. Psalm 23, 1 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 27, 1 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 144, 15 says, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. That might be a promise you need to claim Lamentations 3.25 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we understand that your word clearly says we need to forgive. So, Father, I pray for every person in this room right now who is holding on to a measure of unforgiveness, perhaps feeling overwhelmed by the fact that their emotions don't seem to want to forgive. Their mind doesn't seem to want to forgive. But Lord, we choose to agree with your word this morning that every one of us has been given a measure of faith. However small it is, we've got something. Father, I pray that you will empower us, embolden us to take that step of faith with a little bit of faith that we have and speak it out. Believing that as we say, I forgive him, I forgive her, that you will begin to take over by the power of your spirit and release faith activate faith, Lord, that we didn't even know that we had. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that every voice 
filling those who are being plagued by unforgiveness with doubt and fear right now would be silenced. That that little bit of faith would shine brighter, sing more loudly than anything and everything else, and that every one of us would walk out of here releasing every person from their debt, but Lord, we know as well being released ourselves. Being released ourselves. Pray you'd work freedom in this room this morning, God. And then Lord, help us to frame our world, our life with your word. To not walk by sight, by what we see, but by what we read in your word. Because we know that it is the greater truth. And so, Father, we cling to your word this morning. And even in this coming time, Lord, we believe the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So, Father, as we seek you, as we wait on you, we do so expectantly knowing, not hoping, but knowing that you are good. You are good. We believe it, Lord. Help us to live it out, to frame our world that way. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.